We're going to um, start our series on baptism, okay? Um, I, and the reason that I, so it's, it's, okay, a little bit like behind the curtain here. The reason why I chose to do a sermon series about family, right, is so that I could preach about baptism, right? It's, it's all kind of leading to this. So what's the, what's the relationship between baptism, preaching about the family, and baptism? I designed it that way because in August, um, we're going to talk about baptism, but specifically, we're going to talk about infant baptism. Right? I think because, as you know, uh, babies are plentiful in embrace, and I think now is the season where we need to, you need to, under, you need to know what my stance on infant baptism is, okay? But infant baptism has to be considered within the largest, larger context of what baptism is. And baptism, so you, we need to know exactly what baptism is to understand what infant baptism is, right? So I don't think we've ever covered in detail what baptism is and what infant baptism is, and that's what we're doing this series, Okay? This series is going to last three or four weeks. So I urge you, if you are a parent to young children, I strongly encourage you to attend, to listen to all of it. Because if you just come on the Sunday that we just preach about infant baptism, it's not going to make any sense to you. You need to have a greater frame of reference of what baptism is to understand what infant baptism is. So they're all related. Like you can't watch Return of the Jedi and know what Star Wars is. It has to be viewed together. So I, so I ask you and I encourage you to attend so that you have a fuller picture of what baptism is. So let's talk about baptism. Today's focus is on baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is one of the most important sacraments that the Lord Jesus Christ commanded his church to observe. Baptism is, once again, is one of the most important sacraments that the Lord Jesus Christ commanded the church to observe. Baptism is a commandment. Baptism is a sacrament. And you say, what is a sacrament, Pastor Jay? I will tell you what a sacrament is. Sacrament is a visible sign by which God offers his promises of grace in outward form. Simply put, sacrament is a visible sign, right, of God's grace that is communicated through, through outward form. By outward form, we mean water for baptism, bread and wine for the Lord's Supper. God uses water in baptism as a visible sign of his grace. You understand? There's two sacraments that the Protestants believe that the Lord commanded us to do. The first one is baptism. The second one is the Lord's Supper. These are the two sacraments, visible signs of his grace that God, that Jesus commanded his church to observe. Roman Catholics have seven. We have two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism 
is a sacrament that is a visible sign of God's grace in uniting us to Jesus Christ. Baptism is a visible sign of God's grace of uniting us into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not for people who have an idea about God. Baptism is not for people who think it's a good idea to believe in God. Baptism is a visible sign for people who profess their identity and their union in Jesus Christ. Uh, comprende, everyone? See, and, and, and you see this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I trust that it's back there. Trustful? Is it back there? Oh, I should be tr more trusting. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, is addressing the question of some punks in the Roman church that says, if we're saved, right, can we just sin and just ask for forgiveness over and over again? You know, the loophole. If Jesus saved me and Jesus forgave me for all my sins, then I can just keep on sinning and he'll still love me, right? Such punks exist throughout the history of the church. This is what Paul is addressing, and this is what Paul is saying. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So Paul's saying, are you telling me that you're giving Jesus the opportunity to show more grace to you by you sinning and asking for forgiveness? Are you out of your mind? You're doing Jesus a favor of showing his grace to you by, by sinning more? It's by no means. We are those who have been, we, have, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in sin any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? Verse 4 is the kicker. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is a visible sign of that, verse 4. Where you, our sinful nature are united with him in his death. Our sinful nature is buried with him in his death. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead with the same power, God raises us with a new life. That's what baptism is. And when, a person, when God raises a person with Christ and gives that person a new life, what that person lives for changes. Baptism is also saying, I have been raised with Christ, therefore I will live differently from now on. I am no longer marked for the world. I am marked for Christ. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 2. Verses, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, his, gave himself for me. Baptism is a union of our sinful nature onto Christ's death, union to a new life as he's resurrected. And after we have new life, the new life means I'm going to live my life for him. Baptism symbolizes that. Baptism is not a religious rite of passage. Many people think baptism is a religious rite of passage. What do I mean by religious rite of passage? You think people think baptism, people don't know what baptism is, and they think it's something that people just do. This is a, this is a script, right? You're, because you're Korean American, most of you, you're raised in like the Korean Presbyterian Church. Right? I was raised in a Presbyterian Church. And what do Presbyterians do when they, when they have babies? Okay, the religious thing to do is let, let me baptize my kid. I don't know what baptism is, right? I'll just baptize my kids because it's a thing to do, right? So you go and you baptize the, your kids. I did that. Caleb, Charlotte, they're all infant baptized, like they were baptized as infants. I didn't really think about what infant baptism is. It's just something that we do, right? So people just do it. And then when the 14, 15 comes along, it's confirmation season. So, you know, the youth group, you take a survey. Who wants to be, who, who, who's up for confirmation? And then you take the kids into confirmation class, and you teach them basic theology. Jesus died for your sins, right? They go, okay, right? And then you're going to go to heaven. Okay, do you believe in this? Okay, yeah. You take the class, you agree with what the teacher says, you're confirmed. And the church says, confirms the person and says, yay, hey, kid, congratulations, you're a Christian now. That's how it goes, right? That's the religious rite of passage thing. Jewish people do the same thing. When the baby's born, male baby's born, poor little male baby, you're circumcised a male baby, baby turns 13, about misfa time, you memorize Hebrew scripture and the kid passes, you throw a party. Religious rite of passage. My goodness, people, baptism is more than a mere religious rite of passage. It is the very union, our identities in Jesus Christ. Baptism is, it signifies our new identity, our new position with God, a new position to the body of Christ, a new position to the world. It is, we are new. Baptism is for people whom God made new. Do you understand? My identity truly is now identified with God in Christ. Look, the world is divided because people identify with different groups. People have the de desire to identify themselves with certain groups, right? And it's the most flimsy reason for under the group, but people do it anyway. People think they're part of a group based on race, People feel part of the group based upon their sexual desire. People feel they're part of a group by their, I don't know, minority status. People feel that they're part of the group by their like school status. Do you know? Do you know this? 
in Korea, right? The, the number one school in Korea is Seoul National University, right? That's like the Harvard, Yale, Princeton combined, Seoul National University. There is a Seoul National University meeting in Northern Virginia, in Washington, D.C. And they play tennis together and they socialize together. And if you didn't go to that school, they don't let you in. If you go to Yonsei, my wife's alma mater, or her Kote, they don't let you in because their identity is based on where they went to school. Look, one of the architects of modern progressive thought that invades all your Netflix series is this guy named Foucault. Foucault was like gay. I can't tell you what he did, but he was gay. And to him, he says, people who think their identity is based on their sexual desire, it's the stupidest thing in the world, he says. It's just a desire. He doesn't understand why people group themselves this way, based on a desire. It's like having a, making identity based upon your flavor, your favorite flavor of ice cream. I identify myself as a chocolate lover. Really? But whether it is defining yourself, identity as a sexual, in, in terms of sexual desire, or where you went to school, people identify themselves in a group. Baptism is saying, I, my identity, my identity is in Christ. I'm united with Christ in his death. I've been raised to life with Christ. And now I live for him. That's what, that baptism is administered to people who make that kind of profession. The New Testament, people are baptized when they make this confession. That is the primary way. No one else gets baptized. They profess faith in Christ Apostles baptized them. That is the overwhelming majority case of baptism cases in the, New, in the New Testament. Okay? Now let's have a clinical definition of what baptism is. Okay, I'm going to give you a clinical, and it's based on the book that I'm reading. Guys, for the last week, I've just been living in baptism world. It's either lawyer thing or baptism. I'm just worried, I'm just thinking about law and baptism, right? I listened to a three-hour debate on baptism. So, but I'm reading this book on baptism, and this definition it comes from that book. Shoot it, kids. I trust it's there. Yeah, I trust you. The definition of baptism is, comes from the book that I'm reading. From, it's called Understanding Baptism. And it's written by this guy named Bobby Jameson, who's part of the Nine Marks Ministries. Okay? And this is his definition of baptism. He says, baptism is, one, church act of, two, affirming and betraying a believer's union with Christ, by immersing the person in water, and three, three, 
a person's act of publicly committing himself or herself to Christ and his people for thereby uniting the church and making marking of him or her from the world. This is a clinical definition of baptism. One, two, three, four. By the way, this is how you study for a law school exam. You divide things into their, define pieces in their separate definitions, right? In order to truly understand what a definition is. You divide a, a, a word into its parts to understand the meaning of it. Today, we're going to talk about points one and two. Next week, we're going to talk about points three and four. Okay? So let's talk about the first point. Baptism is a church act. Meaning, the Lord Jesus has given us, given the church, the authority to baptize people. Individuals cannot baptize themselves. Jesus Christ has given the authority to baptize people to the church. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, which means you, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not, come, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What, what, he, what Jesus, Jesus himself is telling Peter is, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to heaven. I'm going to give you and the church the keys to heaven. And what the keys of heaven symbolizes is, Peter, you and the church now have the authority to open the gates of heaven to people or close the doors of heaven to people. Do you understand? It's crazy authority. Jesus has given Peter and the church the ability to open the gates of heaven to people through baptism or close the doors of, the doors of heaven to people through excommunication. The church, Jesus himself, has given the, the, the authority of, 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 of entry to heaven to the church. He repeats this, right, on the Great Commission. Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Once again, Jesus gives the authority to baptize people to the church. Baptism, once again, is this authority where Jesus allows the church to open the kingdom of God through baptism to people. Baptism is the act of the church. Because Baptism is such a heavy authority that God has given to the church. The church has to be very discerning on who it baptizes. Do you understand? The church, this is a serious responsibility. 
more responsibility than giving my keys to my Ferrari, assuming that I have a Ferrari, maybe I do, to my son. If I have a Ferrari, I'm going to and the key gives to my keys to my son, I'm going to go, you got to be very, very careful with it. Similar authority. You have to be very careful and discerning on who you baptize, church. Little bit of preview. My issue with infant baptism is that I just, I'm not 100% sure that I should be baptizing infants. That's, I mean, that's a preview of what it is. Because this responsibility is so awesome and heavy. I can't baptize people where I am not 100% sure that I should be baptizing. That is why sometimes when you go through like membership class or baptism class with me, it sometimes sounds like an interrogation. Someone went through it recently, and they say it was very heavy. And the reason why I did it so heavy is not because I hate the person, but I wanted to make sure the person knows who Jesus Christ is. Do you understand? And then you say, then what about people whom you baptized who fell away? Good question, right? There are people that the church, including me, have baptized that ended up falling away from the faith. Is the church to blame for their falling away? The Bible says no. Hebrews 5 and 6, 1 John chapter 2 says, if they, have been, if they fell away, they were never one of us. And, God, and, and the responsibility for them falling away rests on them. If the church is faithful in its end, can't, we can't know 100%. But if we do our best to, best to baptize person, I think Christ will honor that. But if the person falls away, the, 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 li the liability, the responsibility lies with that person. Do you understand? Baptism is the act of the church. Second definition, and this is what we're going to focus on until the rest of the time. It's affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing the person in water. What that, what the, when the church baptizes a person, we are affirming God's grace, God's saving grace upon that person. We are different from Catholics and Lutherans. Catholics and Lutherans believe in what you call baptismal regeneration. That's a, that's a big word. And what baptismal regeneration means is they believe the ceremony of baptism itself has the power to cleanse people from their sins. Do you understand? 
One of the main reasons that the Catholic Church started baptizing infants, the Catholic Church, is because babies died early during that time, right? Infant mortality rate is skyrocketing. So in order to ensure the kid's salvation, the Catholic Church started to practice infant baptism to ensure that the kid is saved. This is not the position of the Protestant Church, but this is the position of the Catholic Church. Baptismal regeneration, the act of baptism itself has the ability to save. We're not saying that. We're saying baptism, when we do it, is affirming God's saving grace upon that person. We look at a person's life. We look at the, We hear the person's confession, and when we when we can see the saving work of God in that person's life, then we affirm that grace through baptism. Are you with me so far? Is it clear? Josh, you look at me. Are you clear? Okay. Man, I'm a good teacher. Here you go. We believe that God does his saving work in the lives of men and women. He really does. And the the example that I can give you is um, I was listening to a testimony of this guy named uh, Tim Rogulis. Rogulis? Tim Rogulis is a Harvard, Princeton, Cornell-trained theoretical physicist. He's a young guy. Young, barely over 30, Ivy League trained theoretical physicist. By the way, in the science hierarchy, they say the number one, like in the sciences, the number one smartest people go into math. Second is theoretical physics. That's the hierarchy. I'm not going to tell you what the bottom part of sciences are because I don't want to offend people. But the highest part of sciences is math and theoretical physics. And this guy went to the best school to study theoretical physics. He wasn't wasn't raised in a Christian home. But his twin brother became a Christian. And and he began to have a conversation with with his twin brother about Christianity. And, you know, Christianity kind of started making sense. He started reading the New Testament. It made more sense. And then he started reading Christian literature. It made more sense. So he says, through a conversation with his brother, through reading the New Testament and Christian literature, Christianity made intellectual sense. But he wasn't fully persuaded by who Jesus Christ was. Until he went through a polygraph exam as part of his job application with the National Security Agency. The NSA. It's the most covert, secretive, cold-breaking organization in the U.S. government. They deal with top, top, top secret stuff. Because if you get a job offer from the NSA, you go through a rigorous polygraph test. He says that polygraph test lasted for four hours. And that polygraph test is so, it's the most state-of-the-art 
polygraph test. It not only detects when he's lying, but it also detects when he feels guilty about something. Crazy. So before the polygraph test, he, Christianity makes sense, but he wasn't fully convinced Jesus was real because he said, you know, yeah, Christianity makes sense, but I think I'm still a good person. Right? I think, I, 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 I think I'm a pretty good person. If there's a heaven, I think I'm going to go because I'm a good, good person generally. But during the polygraph test, because it even detects what he's feeling guilty of, for four hours, he had a really good look of who he is on the inside. And he realized, oh my goodness, there is so much sin in me. There is so much evil in me. He had a four-hour session with his sin. And after that, he says, Christianity, Jesus Christ, made all the sense in the world. And he became baptized. That's the work of God, saving work of God in the hearts of men and women. Why do people not know Jesus Christ? It's because people don't think they're not that bad. If you think you're a good person, if you think there's nothing really wrong with you, then just like this guy, Christianity, Jesus Christ, you may agree with it intellectually, but you will never be persuaded by the veracity of Jesus Christ. You won't. If you think you're a good guy, if you think you're capable of love on your own accord, then why in the world do you need Jesus Christ? We had a really good discussion on Friday night small group, right? I really didn't want to go, to be honest. Sorry, group. I didn't want to go because, oh, man, I worked my butt off this weekend. Last thing I want to go, it was raining in my eyes. Oh, I can't go. My eyes are raining. But then I realized moments when I don't want to go, and if I do go, oftentimes they're the best. And it was right. We went two hours of great conversation and development insight. Through the conversation on Friday, as I was coming back home, I was mindful of two people, right? Two people in the Bible who asked Jesus about eternal life. Remember those two people? What do I, must I do to inherit eternal life? One guy was last week's sermon, the lawyer guy. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Another guy, rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, obey the commands. He says, I did. And Jesus said, okay, then go sell your possessions and follow me. He couldn't. What do these two guys have in common? 
these two guys who asked Jesus these questions didn't think they were that bad. The lawyer thought he was a loving guy. He was loving according to the, to the, to the, to the laws of Moses. The rich young ruler thought he was a good guy according to, the, according to the letter of the law of Moses. They looked at themselves in the checkbox. I do this check. I don't do this check. They looked at themselves through, they look at their morality through the, through the, through the checkbox. I do this. I don't do this. And because majority I do things and I don't do things, I think I'm a good guy. That's why they, they, they went to Jesus. But Jesus, when they're, by Jesus telling the rich young ruler the story of the Good Samaritan, he's not telling the good lawyer guy, you should love people more. That's not the point of the story. Through the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is revealing this guy, to this guy, you're not really loving. You may think that you're loving because you check the boxes, but in your core, your disposition, your orientation, you're not really loving at all. Jesus tells them what? Jesus says eternal life. Having life means loving God and loving other people, right? This guy didn't have life because he was unable to love people. He was loveless. That's what the good parable of the Good Samaritan revealed. The lawyer, the, the, the rich young ruler, when Jesus says, sell all your possessions, the, the rich young ruler thought he was a good guy. He loved God. But by, by Jesus telling him to sell his possessions, the rich young ruler realized he loved money more than God. These questions reveal to these two fellas your orientation, your condition is that you don't love God and you don't really love other people. Christianity is not about doing this or don't doing that, primarily. It's about change in nature. My dear friends, what is wrong with you is not a certain immoral behavior that you do, but the root cause of that immoral behavior. You're in, you commit those immoral behavior because at its core, we are loveless. We don't love God and we don't love other people. I can stand here and preach about you should sacrifice yourself more and you go, okay, but you won't. Why? Because your orientation is that you're designed to love yourself more than the other people. Guys, do you know, do you know why you watch pornography? It's because you're loveless. You don't love people, man. Paul says, do not commit sexual immorality because sexual morality is the opposite of love. Sexual morality is committed because you're loveless. Our nature is loveless. Do you understand? It's that nature that Christ took with him on the cross and he died with it. And when, he's, when he raised back to life, he raises us with new life. New life means that nature 
of the inability to love God and other people, that nature has been replaced by the nature of God. So that you are able to love God and others. You're not going to be perfect. You're not. Trust me, I know all of you, and you're not. And you know me, and certainly I'm not. But the new life means when God raises you in Christ, he, from that moment on, he will constantly work in you so that you will become a more loving person towards God and you'll you, you become a more loving person to other people. Having a new nature in this world means God never stops working in you so that you will love him more and love others more. Listen to me carefully. I am convinced that everything that you will go through between now and death, the purpose of that, the good things and the bad things, it is so that through those things, you will love God and you will love other people more. That's it. That's his great design for you. On my way here, I was listening to a sermon by Joe Austin. He goes, I listened to it so, so, so that I will know what not, how not to preach. Joe Austin is saying God is there to bless you materially, overcome cancer. That's not it. God's purpose for you, according to Romans chapter 8, is from this moment on, he, he will use everything so that you will grow to love God more and to love others more. That's the work of God. Baptism is administered to people whom God has united that person to Christ and whom God has begun an amazing work in their lives. That is what baptism is. That's what it is. In the union with Christ. Let's go to the text. That was a long intro. I'll end, in, I'll end the text in. We're making good time, trust me. Let's look at the, let's look at the text today. What is text about? The text about, the, the, the text is, the, what the text is, is Apollos is in Corinth, Paul is in Ephesus. Ephesus is the church that, Paul wrote Ephesians 2, right? So Paul is in Ephesus, and he was traveling, and he saw 12 disciples. These aren't Jesus' disciples. He says 12 disciples. And when we hear the word disciples, we think these guys are Christians. They're not, right? And we will see why they're not. Disciples means student, pupil, a follower. So these 12 disciples were not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. Okay? And Paul asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And the guy said, yeah? What? We don't know what the Holy Spirit is. Why is that an issue? That is an issue because the Holy Spirit's job is to testify the work of Jesus to the hearts and conscience of men. These guys did not receive the Holy Spirit means these guys did not receive the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
these guys are disciples of John the Baptist, not Christ. Then you, then you thinking people will say, what's the difference? Isn't, wasn't John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus Christ? Yes. But before John the Baptist met Jesus, John the Baptist didn't know who the Messiah was until Jesus appeared before him. But John the Baptist was doing ministry way before Jesus appeared to him. Before John the Baptist could recognize who Jesus was, he was doing ministry in the wilderness. And he was baptizing people. Okay? Are you with me so far? And what are some of the things that, what, what, like, what were some of the things that John the Baptist was saying when he was baptizing people? He was telling the truth. This is found in Luke chapter 3, I think. These are some of the things that John the Baptist was saying. He says to the crowds coming to be baptized by him, to the people who are coming to be baptized by him. He didn't say, welcome to be baptized. No, he didn't say. He says, you brutal vipers who warned you to to flee from coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's telling people who are coming to him to be baptized. He says, don't think. Just because you're biologically related to Abraham, to somehow you're in good with God. That's what he's saying. He said, you should repent, and you should produce good fruit of righteousness. Is he wrong? No, he's right. Don't live for yourself. Repent and produce fruits of righteousness. That's what John was saying. Fantastic. John was preaching repentance. John was also preaching sacrificial love. John said to them, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. He says when he was baptizing people, Look, if you have two shirts, give one of the shirts to the person that don't have some. Same with food. Bernie Sanders, like, hero. Socialism, right? He was preaching socialism. Give something that you, rich give something to the poor. Great, true, fantastic. He was also preaching social justice. He was telling the soldiers, hey, soldiers, stop extorting people money because Roman soldiers at the time or, or Jewish soldiers at the time were collecting people for protection money. You know protection money? You know that's how the mafia like makes money? They go to stores. Hey, let me talk to you. Like, you know, these, these streets are dangerous. You know? And if you pay us, we'll make sure that nothing happens to you. Capiche? Right? And they give you protection money. Same thing. These, Roman, these Jewish soldiers were doing the same thing. John's telling them, don't do that. Don't do that. He was telling tax collectors, don't collect tax, extra tax, and keep the extra money for yourself. Don't do that. What John was telling these people were good things, were right things. But their baptism wasn't true baptism. 
Because that baptism was void of the knowledge and the persuasive power of Jesus Christ. What makes us Christians is not because we believe in God. What makes us Christians is not because we believe in social justice. What makes us Christians is not even what we, is a belief that we should repent for our sins. All of it is important, but what truly makes us Christians, what makes us Christians is the knowledge that we're united with Jesus Christ in his death. He took our sinful nature with him to the grave, and he, and he gave us new life as he was raised from the dead. Belief in that makes you a Christian. Belief in a general God doesn't. Believe that you should be a better person doesn't. Belief in social justice doesn't. Belief that you're united with Jesus Christ does. My dear friends, are you united with Jesus Christ? Is your Christianity, is your confession of your faith, is that of a general idea of God, or is it Jesus Christ died for me, and Jesus Christ raised me to new life? Parents, that's what you need to pray for your children. You know? that your children will come into living faith in Jesus Christ. Look, brief story and I'll end. Very, very, by the way, I'm very impressed with like, how short I did it. It took me like, a long time to write this. So I was like, it's silly. I was like thinking this morning. And last week it was just crazy busy because one of like, like my, my associate lawyer who reported to me, she got laid off. So all her work became my work, and I just get bombarded with her work, right? And I had to, like, prepare for the sermon series. So I just got, you know, just a lot of things that I did. But I have so much energy, and I couldn't understand it, right? Why do I have so much energy, right? I think I worked, like, 100 hours, 80, 80 90 hours last week. Why do I have so much energy? The biblical answer is prayer. But the answer that I realized this morning was jump rope, right? So jump rope somehow gave me the energy to do this. And the question is then, why do I start jump roping? By the way, jump roping is awesome. And I was like tracing what, I think God led me to jump rope to give me energy through it. And I was thinking about my jump rope journey. And I realized, for some reason, I was just interested in jump rope when I was a kid. I had an interest in jump rope. And by God's grace, I have the ability to jump rope. Like, I tried to like, have my son and my wife try to jump rope. They couldn't do it. I, I was a natural jump rope for some reason. Right? I, I could see my son trying to jump rope. I go, oh, my gosh. Jump rope is a gift. And three... 
these days, like out of the YouTube rabbit hole, I, I found like these, these guys called the jump rope dudes, and they're devoted to jump roping. So I was a fan of them, and I bought their app, and I'm following it. I didn't seek after them. They just appeared in my feed one day. God gave me the interest. God gave me the ability. God gave me the opportunity. Through it, I have the energy to do what he wants me to do. And I'm telling you this, not to persuade you to jump rope, but I'm, persuading, I'm telling you this. Because I think that's how it works for everything, especially you and your children's salvation. God is the one who's going to give your children the interest of him. God is going to give them the ability to respond and the opportunity to respond. You pray for that, for your children and for yourself. And when your children and come to living faith in Jesus Christ, it is then we baptize them. Okay? Let's pray.